Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on this installment of the program. Again, uh, follow us at danproftshow.com. That's where you can get podcasts of this program. You can also get those at iTunes and Spotify and uh, on social media. You can track us at contact traces, if you will, at at Dan Prof show, both on Twitter and Facebook at Prof Dan, the reverse there on Instagram. Uh, we begin on this program with uh, another curious pronouncement from a former CDC director. In this case, Peter Frieden was on with Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday yesterday and had uh, this to say about uh, allegations that anybody is being alarmist in their projections and fears about COVID-19 as much of the country moves to reopen. I don't think you can be uh, too alarmist about what this virus can do. Look at New York City over the past two months, more than 20,000 deaths from this virus. It's really been catastrophic, but it is important to recognize that there are things we can do to go out more safely. And I have friends in Georgia still, and they describe to me physical distancing in shops, people being very careful. That's important. Also, keep in mind, the virus mutates, it changes, it evolves. But fundamentally, when it begins to spread again, you won't see that for a few weeks because it takes about a week to get sick, another week to get very sick, and then you make other people sick. So once there is the resumption of spread, you might not see that for a month or two. There's a lag here. Uh, Fair enough on the point about the lag, but the idea that uh, there's no such thing as being alarmist is reminiscent of Tony Fauci's pronouncement that there's no such thing as an overreaction which was the predicate to uh, a rush to lock down uh, rather than, I would argue, be particularly thoughtful in how you were going to lock down. Was there a way to phase things in? Was there a way to do something akin to the Swedish model, at least in particular states that now we find have had virtually no COVID cases and virtually no deaths? I mean, remember here uh, the data. In 30 counties, which represent 15 percent of the population in the country, 30 counties, 15 percent of the population, you have a plurality of deaths and a majority of cases in 2000 counties, which also represent 15 percent of the American population. 2000 counties have one death or fewer They represent single digits, percentages of a digit or fractions of a digit when it comes to deaths and single digits when it comes to total cases. So tell me again the posture of the experts for so long and some politicians to this point that uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming is the same potentially as New York City. And if you believe that, that that's not being alarmist, that's not 
an overreaction. For more on this and so much more uh, with uh, all of the various aspects of this discussion, we're pleased to be joined again by Dr. John Bao. He's an emergency room doctor and the chief medical officer and co-founder of Remote Health Solutions. Dr. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me back. What, what, what about that? Am I being too hard on uh, Dr. Frieden, or, or is the idea that there's no such thing as being an alarmist, there's no such thing as overreacting, um, that that's a problematic statement? Now, you know, this is kind of a, a really interesting conversation to have about how do we react to this. And I think initially we, we look at this, if we look back now, you know, several months ago when, when we first started seeing COVID-19 and uh, we started seeing real deaths throughout Europe and in China, how did, how did we react and how did we react as a world and how did we react as communities and as a country? I mean, this was a, a unique scenario, at least for our life, and maybe something similar to, um, uh, you know, the Spanish flu 100 years ago. But the, the idea to say that there's not, like, like, you can't be too reactionary, you know, you can't be too alarmist in a situation like this, I think that maybe takes it a little bit far. And the reason why is because I think that we should always be tempered in our approaches and be smart. And, and I'm, a, I'm a guy that says, you know, I've got two sort of, core fundamental um, parts of my um, personality. And one is I'm a, I'm a man of faith, and one is I'm a man of science. And I think that those work well together when we start looking at um, tough situations like this. Well, how, how do we move forward in, in a brand new scenario, a brand new situation with a brand new virus that we don't really know about? And I think we take the science, we take the data, and we move forward as best we can, and we try to apply rules and principles that are working other places, and then we also go forward with faith, too. And I, and I think that a lot of people think that those are contradictory, but I think that they are synergistic together. Yeah, no, I agree. I think they're complementary. I think that's an excellent point. And, and the, the other thing, too, is here, here, what are we accentuating? The information we're, we're efforting to distribute to sort of inculcate into the consciousness of Americans. On the one hand, we have so much sort of stop-the-spread theater going on with cloth face coverings that um, all of the experts say, including Osterholm, meet the press's go-to epidemiologist from the University of Minnesota, say that has zero impact on stopping the spread. But you, you do it anyway as sort of some signaling. I don't really understand that. Meanwhile, uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, writing in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, talks about what we've learned about treating those infected uh, through the practice of medicine by you know doctors in real time that isn't being distributed quickly and widely enough. He sort of complains such data on patients isn't being streamlined and shared with the public quickly. He gives examples, the uh, evidence of blood clots of being a frequent complication of COVID. And so the need to put patients on blood thinner, something that doctors have observed through treating patients. Another patients can appear to be starved for oxygen, um, even though their organs are in fact well supplied with air. And so doctors have adjusted by being less reliant on ventilators and taking different approaches with trying to um, address uh, breathing issues that patients have. And yet this is somewhat known, but it's not known the same way that, you know, wash your hands, wear a face covering is known. Yeah. You know, um, it, the way that you said it, it's somewhat known. I think that's a great way to be able to put it. And even amongst other medical professionals, when I, when I talk about the things that, 
I'm reading, the things that I'm hearing from my friends on the East Coast, the things that I'm, I'm hearing from my friends in Europe about um, uh, treatment models and things that they're doing and seeing, I'm surprised by the number of providers who aren't hearing this. And I think part of the reason is because um, I think in a lot of ways people are just trying to keep their heads above water, so to speak, and I'm just trying to manage what they're doing on a day-to-day basis and incorporating some of the reading, the literature that, that they can get their hands on. And, and also, you know, getting, getting information from Fox and CNN and, and other places that are just media outlets rather than science outlets. Because like you pointed out, that the, uh, the increase in blood clots, I, I read an article about how this COVID-19 knocks out the heme group from the um, um, the red blood cells, and, and that's one of the reasons why we're um, seeing this increase in uh, um, on blood clots in these COVID patients, and, and what can we do about that? And I talked to my friends that uh, are in New York, and they're starting patients um, uh, right away on um, on blood thinners to be able to reduce those um, those adverse outcomes there. But I think I think it's a little bit hard to be able to take all of that and incorporate it in when you're not in a large center of education or or when there is a when you're not in an area where you're seeing a, a large incidence of patients either. And and so so that makes it that makes it difficult because if you're like you said, Cheyenne, Wyoming, if you're Cheyenne, then you're gonna see a couple of cases and, and what do you do for that? You kind of treat them like you normally would for a a respiratory patient, you put them on a vent and you, and you hope they get better and you, and you try to do some antivirals, but uh, being able to know that you should be starting them on, on heparin and trying to push off the vent for as long as you can and try to be able to um, uh, use a high flow oxygen, those things are new. That's not how we would normally treat a, um, a respiratory failure patient. So there's so much about this that is new and different and we're learning all the time, but the distribution of that knowledge um, it's definitely not as widespread as it should be. I think that we're working on that now, but I, I, I don't know right now if it's going to get everywhere it needs to go. Instead, I think we're going to see that as we see our second wave more. That's, that's when I think that we'll, we'll be seeing more of the implementation of information that we've gained through this first wave. Well, it seems like it's another sort of falling down of the job of CDC, particularly when you have uh, these doctors yeah. now that have become household names, uh, Tony Fauci and Deborah Burks. They could be using their profile to distribute this information. Um, it seems like a relatively easy fix, but it's not happening. When we come back with uh, Dr. John Bao, who is the emergency room doctor, chief medical officer and co-founder of Remote Health Solutions, I want to get his reaction to a Washington Post op-ed that has force that has a few steps that we could take to stop the pandemic by July 4th. More with Dr. John right after this. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show and um our friend alex tabarak the economist over at george mason university as well as a co-founder and operator of the marginal revolution blog has an op-ed with a colleague. We could stop the pandemic by July 4th if the government took these steps in the Washington Post. And he essentially argues for red, yellow, and green zones. 
uh, green zones, that's good. Um, yeah, red and yellow, less good in uh, descending, uh, in uh, ascending order. Red bad, yellow a little less bad, green good. The goal is to be a green zone where fewer than one resident per 36,000 is infected. Most Americans, about 300 million, live in yellow zones where the disease prevalence is two one-hundredths, two one-thousandths of a percent to a percent. But even in yellow zones, the economy could safely reopen without with aggressive testing and tracing coupled with safety measures, including mandatory masks. A disease prevalence of greater than 1% defines red zones. Today, 30 million Americans live in those hot spots, which include Detroit, New Jersey, New Orleans, New York City. In addition to the yellow zone interventions, these places require stay-at-home orders. Uh, but by strictly following guidelines for testing and tracing, red zones can turn yellow within four weeks, moving steadfastly from lockdown to liberty by July 4th. And he says the key is testing going from 300,000 tests a day nationally to 5 million a day, which he believes is achievable based on researchers estimates of the latent capacity of the system when it comes to testing. Tabarak has also argued on this show there should be specific earmark funding for the uh, development of a vaccine. And, you know, by year's end, the 15 or 20 different uh, vaccines being pursued. Uh, versions of them being pursued that show any sort of promise should be fully funded and scaled by the government so they can be distributed upon any one of them uh, uh, checking off and actually being effective for immediate and mass distribution. So that's that's a lot. But, you know, the just the gist of it is three zones from, you know, uh, ascending to descending threat levels and some uh, regimen not dissimilar to what's happening in in, in a comparison of, of states today, but uh, through July 4th with a huge ramp up in testing to get a real handle on the virus and its spread, as well as the necessary treatments ostensibly to get something close to herd immunity by July 4th weekend. To assess all that, we're pleased to be back with John, Dr. John Bow, emergency room doctor, chief medical officer and co-founder of Remote Health Solutions. Uh, John, that's, uh, you know, big thinking, but uh, what's your reaction to sort of the, the broad strokes of that idea? Well, I think that's not so dissimilar from uh, the plan that I've been um, uh, spreading and, and, and touting for the past uh, six weeks or eight weeks, really, to be able to uh, open our economy because uh, the, the, um, the feeding or managing of COVID-19 is, uh, you know, integrally related with the ability to be able to open our economy. And I think that that on a day-to-day basis, on a, on a paycheck-to-paycheck basis for the majority of America is is the forefront knowledge or the forefront, the forefront idea that they're all having. And and my idea along with along that similar lines is, is, yes, we need to be doing massive amount of testing. If you read the epidemiologist, we need to be testing at a level that um, uh, about 10 to 13 percent of our tests are positive, knowing then that we're, we're testing enough people. So we need to increase that number of testing dramatically from where we are and, and very dramatically from where we started. But, but and then uh, and as we just on the te- just on the testing front, because I think we need to revisit that yeah. testing, testing, testing. Yeah. Everybody says it. What does it mean? As I understood it at the outset, it was a progression from, you know, frontline healthcare workers to the symptomatic to the asymptomatic, you know, sort of tiered. Yeah. And and one of the things I asked, um, I've been asking from the beginning, uh, particularly as you ramp up 300,000 tests a day, 5 million tests. I mean, 
why couldn't you, why don't you do representative uh, sample testing? So you do, you test, you know, demographically uh, across every possible demographic representative uh, a sample of the population, the same way that we uh, poll people, for example, in a, in a public opinion poll. So you have 95% confidence interval that this is a representative sample of, uh, of a, you know, much larger population. Why can't we do it that way? So we'd have to test fewer and we get a handle on what the profile is. And then we could model based on those profiles. We, we can do that some, but I also think in conjunction with that, um, um, to be able to reduce the total number, we, we not only get that representative demographic testing, but also I, th- I do think it's mostly important to be able to um, uh, emphasize our, our time and testing within those patients and patient populations who are most at risk. You know, for instance, um, in, in a sense, um, do I care if my eight-year-old has COVID-19 um, because she's probably not going to get sick. She's going to act like she has a virus. Um, but we do want to know if she's got the antibody for it, right? So we want to know when she's um, no longer spreading the virus and is she immune for it and can she go out in the economy? I mean, go back out into society. Can we start back up school? Can we do those type of things? So, yeah, I think that we can do representative testing, but I also think that we need to emphasize some of those areas that are at our highest risk. And then as we as we do move through that green, yellow, and red, we also are able to selectively isolate and selectively quarantine. And that's one of the biggest things that I've been pushing for for this entire time is let's isolate and quarantine those who are sick. Let's send them home with technology. Let's, you know, we, we do this all the time as, as remote health solutions. We, we monitor people in their homes. We, we take care of chronically ill, multiple comorbid, comorbid patients, and we improve their outcomes because we're paying attention to them on a daily basis. We do the same thing with COVID-19 right now, but as we do that across the nation, then we're not shutting down the economy. We're isolating individuals who should be isolated. We're protecting those who are at risk, and then we're separating infective patients. And then, and then your and that, and questions and comments. Of, go ahead. Yeah, and, that, and that's actually one of the other things that Alex Tabrak argues in the Washington Post uh, op-ed I was referencing. So you are on the same page with him. I, I wanted to get yeah. your, I, you know, Moderna, there was some uh, some news today about Moderna's uh, potential vaccine showing some early promise, and it sent the market skyrocketing. Seems to me maybe a bit of an overreaction. I mean, isn't it the case that we've never developed a vaccine for a human coronavirus and we've never developed a vaccine for any virus on the timeline that people are talking about right now, meaning like the end of the year, even the beginning of next year? Yeah, you know, here's here's my take on that is, you know, we've got Project Warp Speed in place, and, and that just means that we've got increased funding and emphasis, and we're, and we're funding multiple pathways like you had mentioned and talked about. But, you know, a typical um, uh, beginning-to-end process for a, a vaccine is between 5 and 10 years. Yeah. And then we start talking about an expedited pathway, and can we do this in 18 to 36 months? And, you know, the emphasis or the thought right now to be able to have – a vaccine by the end of the year, um, I, I would love to see it, right? Like, we'd, we'd all love to be able to say, hey, you know, everybody can get vaccinated in December and we're going to be great. I just have a hard time seeing that we can move it through the process effectively and then be able to reproduce enough samples or enough doses to be able to get out into the economy or into the community to make that big difference. I would love to see it happen. 
Yeah, well, sure. That is an extremely aggressive and fast yeah. timeline to be able to say that it can happen. It's just another example. I mean, you know, we treat hopeful and realistic as they're, as if they're antonyms, and they're not. You can be both. <laughs> uh, he is Dr. John Bao, emergency room doctor, chief medical officer, and co-founder of Remote Health Solutions. Dr. John, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate your time. Take care. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Former President Obama offering and posing, really, a commencement speech on 2020 high school graduates over the weekend via the interweb saying this. You know, all those adults that you used to think were in charge and knew what they were doing, turns out they don't have all the answers. A lot of them aren't even asking the right questions. So if the world's going to get better, it's going to be up to you. That realization may be kind of intimidating, but I hope it's also inspiring. With all the challenges this country faces right now, nobody can tell you, no, you're too young to understand, or... This is how it's always been done. Because with so much uncertainty, with everything suddenly up for grabs, this is your generation's world to shape. Mm -hmm. And three pieces of advice on how to shape it from the former president. First, don't be afraid. America's gone through tough times before. Slavery, civil war, famine, disease, the Great Depression, and 9-11. And each time, we came out stronger. Usually because a new generation, young people like you, learned from past mistakes and figured out how to make things better. Second, do what you think is right. Doing what feels good, what's convenient, what's easy, that's how little kids think. I don't know if this was more of a commencement or a personal confession, but I'll tell you what, there's two premises that are uh, in, 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 uh, insinuated in the president's remarks, particularly if you watch the full, the full video, which I would encourage you to do. Uh, one is that the latest is the greatest. The latest point in time is the most advanced point in time. The other is the past offers only instruction on what not to do. There is nothing to conserve from the past and bring forward because our job is to rewrite history in real time. Start history in real time. Day one is, a, you know, tomorrow is always day one for the progressive left in their uh, utopian visions for what America and what the world can be if the right machinists are in charge. For more on this, pleased to be joined by Michael Warren Davis, editor of Crisis Magazine, contributor to the American Conservative, Spectator USA, and First Things. M.W. Davis, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Man, there's no point in me being here. That was that was a terrific summary. I don't really think I have anything to contribute. Well, okay, well, yeah, thank it's you. great to be here again, as always. Yeah, but I, but but you know what I'm talking about, and, and and perhaps some people don't know what I mean. Like the latest is the greatest, and that's not true. I said, well, well, yeah, look at the the advances in our quality of life and technology and convenience, right? And then there's also things that have transpired over the last uh, forty years, or twenty years, or ten years that are positively ghastly and ghoulish, some of the trend lines with respect to euthanasia. Is that an advancement or is that a regression? And uh, I just think people think tomorrow is always better than yesterday. And uh, sometimes it's true and sometimes it isn't. Absolutely. And 
it really, I don't know if you noticed, but when, uh, when President Obama listed all of the previous crises that were faced by the nation, none of them happened under his watch. <laughs> he had this, this really chill pina colada presidency where he was just sort of sitting back, basking in the, the love and admiration of America's youth, tinkering with the health care policy, kind of screwing everything up, but it didn't really matter. There were no immediate consequences. Uh, sort of tooled around with the recession, and then now he's out of the way. Man, he really is, regardless of what you think of his policies, he really is just in a really annoying kind of guy. And then to take pot shots at his predecessor, who really is facing a, 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 one of the great crises possibly of American history, and to just to just bag on him without offering any constructive criticism, it's just horrifying. Well, this is uh, right from the Alinsky playbook. Keep the pressure up. Don't relent. Keep the pressure on. Keep the pressure on. Keep the pressure on. And you do so, you know, so, you know, sort of like the false modesty and the excruciating dad humor. You know, don't listen to me. I'm an old fuddy-duddy, but here's what you should do kind of rap that he does. And uh, and this is why he's such an effective uh ambassador for the radical left absolutely yeah it is quite striking that you know he 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 aged a lot in the course of his presidency we always say that but uh, the guy that went into um 2008 looking so youthful already you know he's he's gray all over and he's uh as you say really brilliantly figuring out how to how to readjust his uh his his message from the the youthful anti-establishment upstart to the graying elder statesman of the of the sensible left, uh, of course he's anything but he's he's graying. He's an elder statesman of sorts, but it, he is not he, he's not a, a moderate as he's so often framed to be. He's not a moderate. He's a He's a he's sort of the the acceptable manicured face of the of the hard left. He always has been, and he always will be. When we come back with Michael Warren Davis, I want to pick up on the case for Christian stoicism in the face of both the virus, the economic carnage, and the mess, and the uh, press coverage. All of that coming up with Michael Warren Davis, editor of Crisis Magazine, right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Michael Warren Davis, the editor of Crisis Magazine, contributor to the American Conservative, Spectator USA, and First Things. And um, a contribution you made to the magazine, uh, which you're the editor, Crisis Magazine, uh, about the case for Christian stoicism uh, during these times. And uh, I, I find that you're, you're holed up uh, in Russell Kirk, Russell Kirk's uh, uh, ancestral home are you still there right now in michigan alas no we just we oh. just moved back to new hampshire oh okay uh, but we were there for over two months i think yeah and and, and okay so that this is good, gives you time to reflect on um the conscience of uh i mean the the conservative mind and uh, uh and 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 conservatism more generally even beyond russell kirk's scholarship and so the, the the case for Christian stoicism, and you talk about sort of the belief in the uh, principle of imperfecti- imperfectibility when it comes to human beings that Christians and Catholics bring to the table. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting and really strikingly simple concept. And while I was at the at the Kirk Center, I was thinking a lot about the Greatest Generation, of which Kirk was a member. And uh, the, the you know the Greatest Generation that's the generation that fought in World War II, grew up during the the Great uh, Depression. Uh, many of them, like my grandfather, fought in both World War II and Korea. Uh, you know, these were these were the the the, the, the go, this is the golden age of uh, of American history by most by many people's accounts. And Kirk uh, was a World War II veteran, served in the army. And uh, the funny anecdote about him is he, you know, we a lot of where where a lot of the young men were bringing Bibles uh, in their rucksacks. Kirk brought a copy of the Confessions <laughs> by Marcus Aurelius because he was uh, he was just a young Stoic. And but one of the things that I've been I was I was struck by the thought was that if my grandfather were still alive, he died two 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 years ago, I think. He would have lived through uh, through yet another you know great crisis in American history, and uh, possibly might have seen another uh, serious depression or, or recession. And yet, when he talked about growing up during the first Great Depression. He he only had good memories. He he never complained about the poverty. He talked about his family, who were uh, immigrants. He talked about his um, you know his his neighborhood friends, playing football, getting a concussion, and sleeping it off for a week. You know it was just it was you would never would have guessed that he grew up dirt dirt poor in a in kind of a rough neighborhood, in a in a blue collar city in Massachusetts, and <clears throat> this was something that I think was is, is so remarkable about the greatest generation is that uh, they have this sort of intrinsic stoicism. And if you meet these, these old timers who are still around, you know, not only are they veterans of multiple wars, but they also, you know, they have this, this really chipper attitude. They, they tend to be so much pleasanter and they seem so much more content. Their marriages are stronger. They have more kids than, their children or their grandchildren have now. They're, you know, they every they just seem they seem to take such sublime pleasure in such very simple things, um, like again, like family, like friendship, like you know, having a place that you can call home, and just being able to do your duty to your country and to the people that you love and to your community. Um, and this is, I mean, that is really, I think, the essence of of uh you know classical stoicism but also you know anything that that we would call modern stoicism is the ability to just grit your teeth and do what you have to do and just take the joy in life uh sort of as it comes by and above all to 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 take joy and satisfaction in the knowledge that you're doing what God wants you to do and this is something that we we just don't have you know it's we our we were talking about this earlier the the um we have we have this idea of of unlimited progress that we can all that we can perfect our society that we can always become more comfortable uh we can always make our lives more convenient we can always you know um we can eliminate the need for labor and have an endless generation of capital and it's just not true and the and the better the better lights of conservatism should remind us that you know life is going to be hard and there's going to be sickness and there's going to be death and there's going to be hard work to make ends meet and that doesn't but that doesn't mean that you have to you know cower in your house and be miserable all the time drinking and you know just refreshing that COVID-19 map on Facebook you don't have to live in fear you don't have to you don't have to be miserable all the time you can you know even if you're even if you have you know 
even if you go through a little bit of poverty, you know, sickness, political uncertainty, um, life is life. Life can still be good. You can still take joy in life, just knowing that you're doing what God wants you to do, and well, what's right by your family and your country. And and, and also, it seems to me part of this uh, this common sense realism uh, that that used to be and isn't so much anymore. There was an acceptance that uh, there are consequences that follow from particular actions, my own and those of others. And because I understand uh, men are imperfect, I understand there are going to be some imperfect decisions made and some unfortunate consequences suffered. Now it seems that part of this uh, rush to uh, immunitize the eschaton is the idea that um, everyone's an innocent bystander. Nobody's responsible for anything bad that occurs, and they've got all the answers on how to make it good. Absolutely. And I, I sort of avoided the public policy aspect of uh, <clears throat> of the COVID-19 pandemic in my article, just because, you know, I'm, I'm not a I don't I'm not an expert in public health or virology. But what, what is frightening is that, you know, something like when when Governor Whitmer said that, you know, if you if you bring your, these guns to the protests, I might have to extend the deadline even more. It's just spiteful and mean. But she's not going to be held to account for that. You well, know, this is that's the that's a, that's a prime example of of some of someone who you know who toys with power, uh, and 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 exercises her her will without really any regard for the the, the the freedoms that you know that that were guaranteed as Americans. It's also a prime example of uh, something that uh, I cite often because there are so many examples for it. I'm trying to get people to think a little bit. Those who have given in to unreason are ready for unkindness, G.K. Chesterton's observation. Mm-hmm. And that's what you see. You see this just all over the place. I'm I'm taking on a reasonable position. The only way I can enforce my unreasonable position is to be increasingly unkind. Uh, and, um, you know, but perhaps hopefully more and more people will understand the connection between the two. He is Michael Warren Davis, editor of Crisis Magazine, contributor to the American Conservative, Spectator USA and First Things. M.W. Davis, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. 36 million Americans filing new unemployment claims in the last two months. Living in states that uh, we're in which they cannot work. They are controlled in their economic pursuits, which as the Nobel laureate economist Frederick von Hayek observed is to be controlled in everything. And the response from all of these men and women of science on the left, these men and women of data, these men and women of great empathy and compassion who want to open everything up just as fast as everybody else and is very concerned about the economic toll this is taking on working people. Mm-hmm. State Senator Hannah Beth Jackson represents Western Ventura County and Santa Barbara County in California. Last week in a uh, committee hearing in which some of her Republican colleagues were moving to suspend the disastrous AB5 legislation. This is the legislation advanced authored by uh, State Representative Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez, Democrat Socialist, and supported by Senator Hannah Beth Jackson, a Democrat Socialist. 
the AB5 legislation that killed independent contracting and freelance jobs across the state, a direct attack on the gig economy. By the way, I'm recounting this story on a day where Uber announced cuts of 3,000 more jobs, shutting 45 offices around the world. Uh-huh. Also reevaluating its big bets in areas ranging from freight to self-driving technology. The uh, complaints that um, freelancers, not just with rideshare, talking about uh, artists, interpreters, dancers, translators. You've heard from some of them on the show. The response that uh, Senator Hannah Beth Jackson had to the concerns expressed to the call to suspend this legislation that's so destructive of job creation, so destructive of work. Quote, I appreciate that some independent contractors are upset. AB5 took away their lollipop, the legislation. Self-employed people working to provide for themselves and their families took away their lollipop. Oh, is baby sad? We took away your job. Oh, too bad. Is baby sad? Took away your lollipop. Okay. All right, just keep piling on. Keep L.A. County shuttered till the end of July. Keep piling on with these draconian measures and enforcement mechanisms against otherwise law-abiding people at the same time as you open the, the jails and empty out all the criminals, convicted criminals. Keep it up, Senator Hannah Beth Jackson, Representative Lorena Gonzalez, the political ruling class. And uh, while you're... Uh, Sheltered in place in places like California, uh, there is some good news. Uh, fellow California Denison, Dennis Prager, his film that he produced with Adam Carolla, No Safe Spaces, now available to watch for a limited time at nosafespaces.com. The number one political documentary of 2019, which uh, recounts how free speech is under attack by the left on college campuses and social media platforms in Hollywood. Uh, for a limited time only, use the discount code SAFE25 for 25% off No Safe Spaces. And you can watch it as many times as you want until the end of May, May 31st. Again, discount code SAFE25 for 25% off No Safe Spaces. Watch it today with your family at nosafespaces.com. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. California Governor Gavin Newsom on with Jake Tapper on State of the Union over the weekend, making the moral and ethical case for federal support since he can't make a constitutional one. With respect, we'll just uh, caution people to look at this as a frame of charity when it's fundamental purpose of government. It's to protect people's safety and to protect their well-being. This is a moment where we need to meet the moment head on and acknowledge this is not a red issue or a blue issue. This has impacted every state in America. Uh huh. There's no question it's impacted every state in America, some more so than others, some continuing to do so more than others. We uh, mentioned earlier in the show that in California's Central Valley, where farmers grow the food Americans eat and shops provide goods for them and their families, the uh, shutdown is coming to a close 
as Atwater, California, is declaring itself a sanctuary city where businesses and churches are opening their doors. In Virginia, a story in the Washington Times, crowds flock to Virginia beaches despite Northam's, KKK Northam's stay-at-home order. Bill de Blasio threatens to shut bars down after New Yorkers crowd establishments. In Illinois, of course, we have an emergency order pending, a regulation to the governor's executive order that would criminalize violating a Class A misdemeanor, $2,500 fine, 364 days in jail would be the available punishments. And so, you know, it just keeps coming back to this same story. You know, consent of the governed is a thing. And when you're losing the argument or one indication you're losing the argument is the need to come over the top and be even more heavy handed than you were being prior to. Uh, I've already said what the deal is. I'm not going to have this conversation any longer. The debate is over. Uh, I'm not going to use reason. I'm going to use force. And what does that beget? More reaction, at least from more quarters. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Selena Zito, Washington Examiner reporter, New York Post columnist, CNN contributor and author of The Great Revolt Inside the Populist Coalition, Reshaping America's Politics. Selena, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Um, You actually are one of the few uh, D.C. reporters who get out and travel the country. You know, we see the headlines and these anecdotal stories from uh, across our 50 laboratories of democracy out there and. And I wonder if you're from the conversations you have as you travel with actual three dimensional human beings, you're feeling the same movement towards, you know, responsible phased in reopening. That's where that's where a burgeoning consensus is forming. Right. So one of the things that I think I have to my advantage, which a lot of people might not think as an advantage, but I don't live in Washington, D.C. So I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, that gives me, affords me the ability to have a farther reach, not only across my state, but also in Ohio and Michigan and Kentucky, West Virginia, Virginia, Tennessee, Maryland, states I've been to throughout the virus. And the sentiment that maybe you would see on national news and or on social media where, you know, there is this heavy push in particular from journalists and elected officials on the left is that, you know, stay at home forever, or at least for until the end of the year. And that's not what you see. And this is the interesting part across Democrats, Republicans and independents outside of those sort of circles. You know, people, for the most part, unless you have the ability to stay in your home and work from home to infinity, you are pushing back against these edicts to keep people um, wrapped at home. People, whether they're Republicans, Democrats, or independents, they're losing their jobs and or the businesses that they've built either throughout their personal life or legacy family businesses that have been around not just for decades, but for centuries. And there is this sort of revolt against the orthodoxies of their political parties because people within our DNA as Americans, the dignity of work is incredibly important to people and they want to get back to work. And New York Times, oh, golly gee, reporting 5% of New York City's population, 420,000 people left 
the city between March 1 and, and May 1. In fact, Manhattan's overall population has fallen by 20% as the lockdown enters its third month. And who fled? Well, the majority who had vacation homes in Long Island, upstate New York, Pennsylvania, Jersey Shore, Florida. Residents who fled typically were white, had rents of more than $2,000 per month, had college degrees or higher, and earned incomes in excess of $100,000. So we're going to get out, and we'll scold you who can't get out from our vacation home in Naples. So I interviewed the president Thursday in Allentown, Pennsylvania. It's the second time he's got now. The first time was in Arizona the week before when he visited Honeywell. But this time in Pennsylvania, he visited Owens & Minor, one of the uh, five uh, companies in the country that are distributing medical supplies, uh, uh, masks, surgical gowns, et cetera, to health uh, care facilities across the country. And (laughs) when I got there, There was over, and I had to drive from Pittsburgh. It's a a five-and-a-half-hour drive. When I got there, the fascinating thing was the amount of people that showed up. This was not organized. This was not a rally. But we're just lining the streets with American flags and welcoming the president. It was was not something I expected to see, uh, but it it kind of showed the sentiment that is growing. among people that they want, uh, they, that not that they support the president, but they support his constant push to open the country back up. Well, the flip side of the New York story is this a story about uh, Williamson Memorial Hospital in Mingo County, West Virginia. The only hospital in Mingo County, remote pocket of West Virginia, did not treat any COVID-19 patients. In fact, the county of 23,000 had three cases and one death, but the hospital's net revenue was slashed in half as all non-quote-unquote non-essential procedures were halted. Visits to the emergency room there plummeted by two-thirds, and they can't make it, uh, they can't make a go of it financially. So now that region, that county and that region, lose the only hospital they had. Well, yeah. I mean, if, if, if your listeners would go to selenazio.com and check out the reporting I've done, uh, I've been reporting about these rural hospitals going under or laying off people uh, since the beginning of the virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, places right here in my backyard in western Pennsylvania, Washington County, uh, where the Washington Regional Healthcare System had to lay off their healthcare staff because they were seeing, I forget the number off the top of my head, but I, I believe like 10% of what they typically see coming into their doors. Uh, and, and so this is the uh, effect because of the cause uh, that this is happening, not just in Pennsylvania, you've been in West Virginia, but also in California and places all across the country. So if you look at the United States landmass, it's mostly rural. And once again, the rural people are being impacted um, in a way that the people, you know, the governors, didn't even consider as being a side effect. And, and last week, uh, uh, the governor of your home state, Tom Wolf, in a press briefing, called those pushing against uh, the lockdown cowards. Let's call it saying local officials are caving into the coronavirus. Local officials pushing back against this shelter in place or caving into the coronavirus uh, and uh, did like our governor in Illinois did, which is threaten uh, funding for those municipalities. They, he, he also referred to them as a, essentially traitors deserting the, the, the force in the face of the enemy. Yeah. You know, again, uh, if your listeners could go to SelenaZeo.com, check out my reporting on that. 
Um, 70%, I believe it's 70%. I've seen other um, news organizations say 80% uh, of COVID viruses um, in Pennsylvania have come been completely sort of um, centralized in nursing homes, uh, and and that this uh, and show these counties um, are you know pleading with the governor, hey, open us up. We're a rural county. Uh, the the most of the cases, seventy to eighty percent of the cases, have been contained in one nursing home, and you are literally choking us off for um, you know our 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 ability to shop, our ability to live, our ability to provide for our families. And in response, he called them cowards. Selena Zito, Washington Examiner reporter, New York Post columnist, CNN contributor. Pick up the book, The Great Revolt, Inside the Populist Coalition, Reshaping American Politics, and follow her reporting, as she mentioned, at selenazito.com. Selena, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show peter navarro the president's uh, top trade advisor one of his top policy advisors on meet the press over the weekend and um he um, was unafraid to uh, put squarely some of the culpability for the uh, slowness in the response to COVID-19 on the testing front on CDC. Early on in this crisis, the CDC, which which really had the most trusted brand around the world um, in this space, really let the country down uh, with with the testing because not only did they keep the testing within the bureaucracy, they had a bad test, and that did set us back. There's no question that's true. We've talked about it at uh, some length and uh, a number of times on this show, and uh, it's good for the administration to admit the bottlenecks that uh, were in place in February, CDC and FDA. And, uh, you know, if you did a a 2020 hindsight on it, you'd say, boy, uh, the president should have intervened more quickly and and engage the private sector more quickly. It wasn't until, remember, March 13th when Roche was greenlighted for engagement and testing. And the difference between completed tests for the three weeks in February versus the three weeks in March is remarkable. It's something on the order of 3,000 versus nearly a million. And uh, so, hey, look, um, you can uh, admit where things went wrong. It gives you credibility to make sure that people know you're going to do things right prospectively. Nobody expects anybody to be omniscient, but they do expect people to be accountable. Uh, Peter Navarro also went on to then address the question of where we are today and whether or not uh, these draconian lockdowns that exist in some states and localities should persist. This economy is not a question of of lives versus jobs. The, The fact of the matter is, and what President Trump realized early on is that if you lock people down, you may save lives directly yeah. from the China virus. Right. But you indirectly, you're going to kill a lot more people. And why do I say that? We know statistically, based on our experience right. with the China trade shock 
in the 2000s, that unemployment creates more suicides, depression, and yep. drug abuse. But we also know this in this crisis, as we've basically locked down our hospitals for everything right. but COVID, women haven't been getting mammograms or, or cervical examinations right. for cancer. We haven't been able to do other procedures for the heart or the kidneys, and that's gonna kill people as right. well. So if you contrast like this complete lockdown where some of the people in the medical community want to just run and hide until the yeah. virus is extinguished, that's going to not only take a huge toll on the American economy, it's right. going to kill many more people than the virus, the China virus ever would. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend, Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation and author of Wiki at War, Conflict in a Socially Networked World, and Private Sector Public Wars, Contractors in Combat. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, happy Monday. Great to have you, as always. So um, with respect to uh, some assignment of culpability for the alphabet soup of regulatory agencies, uh, is it uh, appropriate to for the administration to be doing a little bit of introspection here and willingly calling out agencies or even particular individuals who uh, fell down on the job, it seems like the press corps is fine when a whistleblower named Dr. Bright calls out Alex Azar, but not so fine when Navarro calls out CDC uh, because that's where Dr. Fauci is. Uh, well, look, we, we have a high, highly partisan divided press corps, so I don't think you know, that's necessarily where we go to to make objective assessments about things. I mean, the reality is, is no, no battle survives or no plan survives contact with the enemy. Pandemic planning is the same way. Um, coronavirus introduced unique testing challenges that nobody in the world was prepared for. Uh, we could replay history and if China had met all its reporting requirements under the international health regulations, then you might argue everybody in the world would have had time to properly put a testing regime in place for this. And even if the United States did have some setbacks that cost us kind of a couple of critical weeks, um, even with that, we might have been well prepared uh, for that. Having, having said that, uh, if you look at all the countries that got the initial tsunami of um, the COVID virus, principally from foreign travel, from people directly from China or indirectly from China. In other words, people in China went to Italy or then people that came from Europe to the United States. Um, nobody really put a testing regime in place to, to break the tsunami. I mean, even South Korea, which many people look at and loud as, uh, and, and Taiwan, which loud as just people that did a tremendous job. Um, and South Korea aggressively put a testing regime in place. We still don't understand how a effective it was early on and didn't false positives on it, but it didn't stop a massive outbreak in South Korea or didn't, wasn't too allowed them to do that. Um, Taiwan mostly broke its disease, not through initially through the testing regime, but through a super aggressive social distancing, contact tracing, and immediately limiting travel from China. So um, I think there's no question that our testing regime was slow off the bat. We can look at some of that. Clearly, there were some uh, not just bureaucratic failures, there were just mistakes that were made uh, in putting the testing kits initially together with the protocols and, and so forth. But um, 
did it did it really slow our response to the fact we could say you know thousands or tens of thousands of lives because we didn't have that in place? Not so sure we we can say that. And it was it was very gratifying to see the administration really quickly recover that and really embrace the private sector and come up with a kind of Apollo 13 solution to really do this. Yeah. Uh, I want to switch gears and uh, address some of the personnel moves that President Trump has made, particularly with respect to inspectors general in various agencies. The latest uh, source of uh, D.C. Beltway angst is the termination of Steve Linick, the uh, inspector general for the State Department. Uh, Senator Ron Johnson, chairman of the Senate Homeland Security Committee, didn't seem particularly bothered by it. I'm not particularly bothered by it. It's well within the president's purview. There are some senators who want more of an explanation than uh, the general one that President Trump gave. But regardless, uh, the criticism is not just with Linick, but that uh, President Trump is taking out more sort of higher profile agency inspector generals than predecessors have done. And of course, this is an indication that something nefarious is afoot. So presidents obviously have a right to hire and fire the people in the executive branch. Um, Congress has a right to investigate that, particularly in cases because uh, not all not all inspector generals are congressionally mandated positions. So some of them are appointed with the advice and, and approval of the Senate. Um, not all of them are, but um, I, to me, this is just kind of business as usual. I mean. You, you don't like people, you fire them. If Congress has a, a problem with that, have you have a nice day and investigate it. If, if, if the government has its ducks in order, you know, the, there's no there there and then we're done. Um, I, I think that largely and if you have a government where people can't get fired and you're afraid to fire people because you think there's going to be political for investigate it, you, you're going to have a government full of yahoos. Yeah. So well, on the, on the yes. other hand, People, you know, people should not abuse their power in government either. That's why we have a Congress to do checks and balances. He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We have spoken about the uh, H3N2 or Hong Kong flu of 1969, that pandemic that took uh, more than 100,000 American lives. And remember, that's at a time when the U.S. population was two thirds of what it is today. So significantly more deadly than COVID-19 as we stand here today. And yet the difference in the reaction I mean, across the board, the difference in the response. Really good piece in the New York Post by Eric Spitznagel, including uh, picking up some comments from our friend uh, Jeffrey Tucker from the American Institute for Economic Research. Schools were not shut down nationwide, 1969 we're talking about, other than a few dozen because of too many sick teachers. Face masks weren't required or even common. Though Woodstock was not held during the peak months of the H3N2 pandemic, the first wave ended by early March 69, and it didn't flare up again until November. The festival went ahead when the virus was still active and had no known cure. Jeffrey Tucker saying life continued as normal, but as with now, no one knew for certain how deadly the pandemic would turn out to be. Regardless, people went on with their lives. The, that generation, talking about uh, 
the baby boomers, that generation approached viruses with calm rationality and intelligence. We left disease mitigation to medical professionals, individuals, and families rather than politics, politicians, and government. That seems to me a huge explanation for the divide or the, the, the significant difference in the response as a nation. We left disease mitigation to medical professionals, individuals, and families rather than politics, politicians, and the government. Mm-hmm. And um, Spitznagel, the author of the piece, notes the similarities between the, the H3N2 flu, the Hong Kong flu in 69, and COVID-19. Both viruses spread quickly, cause upper respiratory systems, including fever, cough, shortness of breath. They infect mostly adults over 65 or those with comorbidities, but can strike people of any age. Both pandemics didn't spare the rich and famous. I uh, didn't know this. Hitchcock actress Tallulah Bankhead and former CIA director Alan Dulles both died from H3N2. Uh, and, of course, uh, COVID-19 uh, infected uh, and nearly cost, uh, nearly took the life of Boris Johnson, the prime minister of Britain. But uh, it's noted both President LBJ and Vice President Humphrey fell ill from H3N2 and recovered. Hmm. Can you imagine what the reaction would be if uh, President Trump now, I mean, of course, LBJ and Humphrey were out of office. But still, if uh, if if former presidents, if uh, uh, President uh, Bush and President and VP Cheney or President Obama and, and uh, VP Biden had uh, covid, what the response would be today as compared to what it was then. Uh, also, in terms of the press coverage. Going back to Spitznagel, the virus rarely made front page news. A 1968 story in the Associated Press warned that deaths caused by the Hong Kong flu more than doubled across the nation in the third week of December. That story buried on page 24. The New York Post didn't publish any stories about the pandemic in 68. And in 69, coverage was mostly minor, like reports of newly married couples delaying honeymoons because of the virus and the Yonkers police force calling in sick while the Hong Kong flu with the Hong Kong flu during uh, wage negotiations. A vaccine was soon developed in August 69, not long after Woodstock, but the news of a cure didn't get much media attention either. According to uh, one researcher that Spitznagel spoke to, it it may seem like the world responded to the 68 pandemic with a shrug of indifference, but the different approaches may be down to a generational divide. We were confident with all the advances in medicine, measles, mumps, chickenpox, scarlet fever and polio. They, They had all been brought under control. Tucker, Jeff Tucker, going back to Jeffrey Tucker, remembers being taught as a child in the 60s that getting viruses ultimately strengthened one's immune system. One of my most vivid memories is of a chickenpox party, the idea that you should get it and get it over with when you're young. And, and then there's this. This is just sh- stunning. Much of our current thinking about infectious diseases in the modern era changed because of the SARS outbreak in 03, which scared the hell out of many people, uh, according to uh, one of the researchers Spitznagel spoke with. So the first time I recall people wearing masks and trying to distance themselves from others, particularly in situations where someone might cough or sneeze. And this, the idea that a pandemic could be controlled with social distancing and public lockdowns is a relatively new one. According to Jeffrey Tucker, it was first suggested in a 2006 study by New Mexico scientist Robert Glass, who got the idea from his 14 year old daughter's science project. 14 years later, we're predicating our response to a pandemic on an idea that one researcher got from his 14-year-old daughter's science project. Are you, are you kidding me? Two doctors, two government doctors, not even epidemiologists, Richard Hatchett and Carter Mecker, 
who worked for the Bush administration, hatched the idea of using government-enforced social distancing and hoped to try it out on the next virus. We're in effect, said Jeffrey Tucker, part of a grand social experiment. <laughs> Remarkable. We're all part of a grand social experiment, like Schrodinger's cat. This is Dan Prop. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Well, newly minted White House press secretary Kaylee McEnany is getting a trial by fire, and she's holding it pretty well, I must say. The topic at her Friday press briefing, uh, well, one of the topics at her Friday press briefing was, of course, the assertions that uh, President Trump has made about uh, the Flynn prosecution, about the Mueller investigation and all things under that umbrella, including suggesting crimes were committed. So Jeff Portnoy of uh, CBS News wanted to know uh, the elements of the crime, you know, tried uh, Stephen Portnoy, I should say, CBS is Stephen Portnoy. Um, wanted to uh, try to uh, pin McEnany down, try and jackpot her by seeing if she could produce, you know, elements of the crime to which the president is referring. And uh, here's what she had to say. Clear, I heard you mention one thing you said was criminal, and that was what? The, the one thing that I've said that was criminal? Right. The leaking of his name and the very real questions that have been raised. But if you want to start talking about wrongdoing in the administration, Happy to go through Andy McCabe leaking to the Wall Street Journal um, and then lying about it. Happy to talk about James Clapper lying before Congress, saying the NSA does not monitor phone calls. That was an inaccuracy, uh, to say the least, if not a lie. Um, and John Brennan telling Congress that the bogus Steele dossier played no role in the Russia probe, when in fact we know it did and was the basis of attaining FISA warrants. So uh, there is a lot of mistruths there that were said, many of them under oath. So I would point you to those and the many other real questions that I hope you all will pursue. Yeah, he was noting, or she was noting, I should say, the Portnoy's and the press corps' newfound uh, intellectual curiosity about the things like the commission of federal crimes. Uh, and uh, this was characterized, the reporting on it of this exchange was characterized as McEnany somehow dodging Portnoy's question. Actually, she was excruciatingly specific, including with what you just heard her restate after the first back and forth between the two, which was that the leaking of classified information is a crime. That's right. The leaking of classified details to David Ignatius at The Washington Post was a, is a crime, was a crime. And it uh, seems fair that people would want to know who committed that crime. Uh, not so much the D.C. press corps, clearly. Uh, and um, the response is is in- interesting. Don't believe Kaylee McEnany. OK, fine. How about Matt Taibbi writing? Uh, a man of the left. Democrats have abandoned civil liberties. In a secrets laundering maneuver straight out of Dick Cheney, out of the Dick Cheney playbook, some bright person first illegally leaked classified details to David Ignatius at the Washington Post. Then agents rushed to interview Flynn about the news, quote unquote. McCabe put it 
in his testimony. The record of the conversation with Ambassador Kislyak had become widely known in the press. We wanted to sit down with General Flynn and understand kind of what his thoughts on that conversation were. Yeah, right. Yeah, it had become known in the press because we had somebody leak it to David Ignatius at the Washington Post. Now we want to interview Flynn about it. And uh, as Taibbi characterizes, a Laurel and Hardy team of agents conducted the interview, then took three weeks to write and rewrite multiple versions of the interview notes used as evidence. Because, you know, why record it? Mm -hmm. They were supervised by a counterintelligence chief who then memorialized on paper his uncertainty over whether the FBI was trying to get him to lie or get him fired, worrying that they'd be they'd be accused of playing games. Uh, Taibbi summarizes warrantless surveillance, multiple illegal leaks of classified information, a false statements uh, charge, uh, false statements charge constructed on the razor's edge of Miranda and the use of never produced secret counterintelligence evidence in a domestic criminal proceeding. This is the rule of law we've been asked to cheer. Russiagate cases were often two level offenses, factually bogus or exaggerated, but also indicative of authoritarian practices. Democrats and Democrat-friendly pundits in the last four years have been consistently unable to register objections on either front. Yeah, indeed. Consistently unable and willing because we've gone, some of us have gone, some of them have gone. Full ends justify the means. Trump hatred and the removal of Trump from office justifies anything under the sun. But then we'll go back to respecting individual rights and an honest definition of the rule of law after Trump. Right. As if you can just snap it back like a rubber band. The Flynn case, uh, Taibbi goes on, uh, was built on surveillance gathered under the FISA Amendments Act of 2008, a program abused on a massive scale by both Democrat and Republican administrations. Not flacking for either party, is Taibbi. He goes on to say, I can understand not caring about the plight of Michael Flynn, but cases like uh, but but uh, cases like this have turned erstwhile liberals, people who just a decade ago were marching in the streets over civil liberties implications of Cheney's war on terror apparatus into defenders of the spy state. Politicians and pundits across the last four years have rolled their eyes at attorney client privilege, the presumption of innocence, the right to face one's accuser, the right to counsel and a host of other issues regularly denouncing civil rights worries as red herring excuses of Trumpism. Democrats clearly believe uh, constituents will forgive them for abandoning constitutional principles. So long as the targets of official inquiry are figures like Flynn or Manafort or Trump himself in the process, they have raised a generation of followers whose contempt for civil liberties is now genuine to permanent contempt for civil liberties. Now genuine to permanent Blue staters have gone from dismissing constitutional turns as Trumpian ruse to sneering at them in the manner of French aristocrats as evidence of proletarian mental defect. And this, of course, as Taibbi points out, has now uh, transferred over to COVID-19 in the response where the almost mandatory take of pundits on the left is that any protest of lockdown measures is a troglodyte death wish. Keep it up. Keep it up. He uh, goes on to say the same mistake that was made by the left of uh, dismissing the concerns of uh, middle income, working class type people is being made with respect to people's civil liberties. 
Yeah. And it provides a political opportunity for President Trump and uh, uh, has the potential to usher Joe Biden and the Democrats into the political graveyard come November 3rd. This is Dan Proff. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I wanted to get to one other matter that was tackled by Matt Taibbi in the piece I was referencing before the break, uh, as well as by the Wall Street Journal editorial board, and that's the. Uh, the conduct of uh, D.C. Circuit Court Judge Emmett Sullivan, the judge in the Flynn case, refusing to uh, allow for the prosecution to simply drop the charges against Flynn and then dismiss the case, whistling in the retired judge who has written unfavorably about uh, the Trump administration's position on Flynn and so forth. Matt Taibbi uh, writes, one had to search far and wide to find a non-conservative legal analyst willing to say the obvious that Sullivan's decision was the kind of thing one would expect from a judge in Belarus. George Washington University professor Jonathan Turley was one of the few willing to say that Sullivan's move could create a threat of a judicial charge even when prosecutors agree with the defendants. And in point of fact, there is Supreme Court precedent on point here that argues against what Judge Sullivan is doing to uh, enlist a uh, proxy to play the role of the prosecution. And there's actually a 2016 ruling in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals on point. U.S. versus Fokker Services. Judge Richard Leon refused to accept a deferred prosecution agreement between the Obama Justice Department and a Dutch aerospace company. He thought it was too lenient. Unable to persuade the judge to budge, the parties filed a writ of mandamus for relief in the D.C. Circuit. The ruling by a three-judge panel wasn't gentle in rebuking Judge Leon's decision as contrary to law and constitutional understanding. This is the uh, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals holding decisions to dismiss pending criminal charges, no less than decisions to initiate charges and identify which charges to bring to dismiss, no less than to initiate and to identify lies squarely within the ken of prosecutorial discretion. Held the court quoting its 1967 precedent, Newman v. U.S. You know who wrote that opinion? An Obama appointee and now chief judge of the D.C. Circuit joined by conservative legal giants like Warren Silberman. Uh, so there's how far afield Emmett Sullivan is, the kind of thing that you would expect from a judge in Belarus, as Matt Taibbi writes. And yet it's cheered by the Jeffrey Tubins of the world in the cable uh, TV news uh, legal analyst theater, legal an- analysis uh, driving a political position, not, uh, not one consistent with the rule of law. I mean, unless Jeffrey Tubin, the great Harvard legal scholar, is uh, indifferent to uh, Supreme Court precedent, to, to uh, the precedent of the circuit in question on the matter. Uh, which uh, brings me to uh, a cure for this sort of groupthink and ends justify the means think, and that's No Safe Spaces. This is the uh, movie put together by Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla. Number one political documentary of 2019. And for a limited time only, you use the discount code SAVE25 for 25% off No Safe Spaces. 
that will allow you to watch as many times as you want until the end of May. Again, uh, No Safe Spaces, documenting the assault on free speech in America and what you can do about it, produced by Dennis Brager and Adam Carolla. For Dan Prof listeners, use the discount code SAFE25 for 25% off and stream No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at danprofshow.com where you can get podcasts of the program. You can also get those at uh, iTunes and Spotify, at Dan Prof Show on Facebook and Twitter. And Illinois Governor, my home state governor, uh, King JB of House Pritzker, as I term him, is quickly becoming uh, the face of the most draconian lockdown approach to COVID-19 in the Western world. And that's saying something in a country that features Gretchen Whitmer. And so to paper over his uh, increasingly uh, uh, fleeting grip on his state's population, he seeks the last refuge of the scoundrel, or maybe actually the first refuge of the scoundrel very private and reserved when it comes to my children. Uh, and it's because there are threats to my safety and and to their safety. And so, you know, you've seen that there are people that, that stand outside the Thompson Center and stand outside the, the Capitol in Springfield uh, holding, I mean, hateful signs uh, that reference me personally uh, and that suggest, uh, if not say, but suggest the potential for violence. Suggest the potential for violence. That's a couple steps removed from a threat. No particular uh, evidence of any threats that he has allegedly suffered being reported to state police. What you have here is someone behaving in the most cowardly manner a man can behave. Using his family as a shield to protect himself politically and as a sword to delegitimize people who disagree with his policy on the merits. That's the sort of politician that has the lockdown and bust attitude. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Dominic Green. He is the Life and Arts Editor at Spectator USA, contributor to the Wall Street Journal and the New Criterion. Dominic, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hello, Dan. Good to be here. Good to good to have you again. And and um, the the lockdown and bus politicians, as you're you're observing them, the Pennsylvania governor Tom Wolf, the Illinois governor Pritzker, the Michigan governor Whitmer, even at the local level, L.A. County officials uh, moving to continue the shelter in place order through the end of July. Uh, and 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 it's it's interesting because. It is coming over the top just as they're starting to lose their grip on popular support, which is sort of what the autocrat does. I'm afraid it is. This is how people behaved at the end of the Cold War period. You know, these kind of petty dictators, they felt that they'd lost their grip on the public. It's very clear that in larger and larger numbers of American people are willing to take the risk of walking around outside perhaps while wearing a face mask. They're willing to take the risk of going somewhere, uh, even with social distancing. They're unwilling 
to lose any more money, any more jobs, or any more time to the present situation. And the response of, the, of these leaders, not all of them elected, of course, the response is to panic, in effect, and, and to double down because they're all scared of a second spike and a further wave uh, of deaths, and they're scared of being held responsible. And you've even seen, actually, across the pond, your way, uh, in Western Europe, uh, some modulation of approach from uh, from those like uh, Emmanuel Macron in France, uh, moving to more of a regional approach to these uh, shelter-in-place orders. Yes, and France had one of the toughest regimes of all. I mean, can you imagine Americans consenting to the terms that the French were put under, where you had to have a piece of paper signed by a local government official before you were allowed to walk to the end of your own street? It's absolutely unconscionable to imagine that here, but that's what they had in France. And they very quickly noticed, of course, that this happens in pockets. There are outbreaks and hotspots and all the rest of it, and they've adjusted accordingly. In Britain, I'm hearing the same thing is now on the way. They've noticed that in London, new cases have nearly flatlined. Uh, It's the regions that have got higher numbers, and so they're going to obviously need a tighter system. The difficulty we have here in the U.S. is that governors are not conducting themselves just by looking at the charts and seeing how the casualties are going. They're looking at re-election. They're looking at not being caught out and not having to carry the can. Well, Robert Browning uh, observed, may man's reach exceed his grasp or else what's a heaven for? You write, um, may Americans do what they want or else what are natural rights for? Uh, very persuasively, as a reminder of the basis of the the founding documents of this country, uh, sort of getting back to first principles, which is nice. It is, and I think this is one of the the silver linings in this great cloud of misery and death and depression that has come over us. The silver lining is we have been reminded of certain crucial things. Family, for instance the networks of friends and community, the the, the important things in life have really been brought to the fore in this. And one of the most important things is to have the freedom to assess risk for ourselves. The experts may have the view from 35,000 feet. The governor in the governor's office has the view of someone who needs money and electoral votes. We as people have to be free to judge our individual risks ourselves and act accordingly. But then you what else is it for? Right. And but then you have, of course, the responses, you know, what duty do you owe your uh, brother, as it were, uh, in terms of that? This is obviously something that affects us all. So your individual, they would argue your individual rights uh, and at the tip of my nose. And with this virus, if you don't follow all of the guidelines or requirements that have been issued by the government, then you're infringing upon my rights. Oh, absolutely. And I'm not proposing, and I don't think anybody really is proposing, going into a nursing home, you know, and circulating there. Absolutely not. Except there Andrew Cuomo, maybe. Sectors. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, there are very vulnerable sectors of the population, and they must be protected. Absolutely. But it's very difficult to see how the average healthy adult is going to get through this any other way if they don't take that risk, because the economic cost of all this is rising and rising. And as the economic cost rises, I'm afraid so too does the human cost in in disease, in in suicide, in all the other things which are being kicked forward uh, while we're in this unnatural state of suspension. I I loved your piece in the Spectator, spectator spectator.us last week, The Bluffer's Guide to Arguing on COVID-19. It reminded me of this great Harvard Lampoon piece from 
decades ago how to fake being an intellectual and you and how to do that. You pick out some obscure author and you have like an irrational hatred of him. Like, did you say Theodore Dreiser? Don't get me started on Theodore Dreiser. Oh. And, and you've got uh, the bluffer's guide to COVID-19, which is just excellent. Give us an example of how you bluff your way through a COVID-19 well, argument. <laughs> I think you've tumbled me there, Dan. Um, an example is, of course, don't call it uh, coronavirus, because that's how everyone else started calling it. Uh, and now if you're COVID-19, we're all calling it that. Now we need to move on to another term, something technical or something that suggests we're familiar, like Verona. Um, when you're talking about uh, research, make sure you know your difference between your antibody test and the virus test itself. Uh, have some percentages, have some statistics, perhaps, from an obscure Scandinavian nation that you can just drop into conversation. Uh, know the name of Batwoman, Shiving Zem, the Chinese researcher, these kind of things. And, of course, if you do all of that, you will actually sound like you know far more about what's going on than our elected leaders. And I'm afraid on that count, you probably would know more than them. Yeah, well, I would, sir, we're, we're simultaneously all lab rats and epidemiologists now. It's, it's fascinating how we can occupy so much space. I think it's true. And, of course, if you look at the politicians who are benefiting, benefiting from this, they tend to be the ones in the, in the, you know, who were not in the spotlight beforehand because they can almost, on a national stage, appear to have power without responsibility. If you look how Gavin Newsom's star has risen, for instance, or how Stacey Abrams has emerged in this way. These are people who have not had to make the national decisions, but they've managed to play the game very well to their advantage and have emerged looking like strong candidates. Well, right, and then and then they're using that uh, newfound popularity uh, to try to leverage uh, absolution from the choices they've made at the local level mm. through federal support, through federal largesse. Very much, and they're trying to leverage it with a $3 trillion proposal for, for effectively uh, making uh, the Democratic Party's agenda the permanent agenda of the United States, which is how much that kind of subsidy will buy. Uh, we are, as we are leaving lockdown, I'm afraid we're inevitably entering the, the political phase when, when the scramble for the prizes begins, even though ordinary workers are still a long way down the creek. He is Dominic Green, Life and Arts Editor, Spectator USA, contributor to the Wall Street Journal and the New Criterion. Dominic, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And um, sometimes uh, it's nice to have our feelings put into verse. Uh, I find uh, reading poetry cathartic, actually, often. Um, inspiring. And um, our next guest, John Kenny, who's New York Times bestselling author, has a timely contribution of poetry, of prose for the time. He is the uh, 
author of poetry collections like Love Poems for Married People, Love Poems for People with Children, the novels Talk to Me and Truth in Advertising, and his uh, newest collection, Love Poems for Anxious People, couldn't, as I said, have been uh, dropped at a more opportune time, I would suggest. John Kenny, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, thank you for having me. I love the uh, <laughs> the hyper-focus on anxious people, but how to write prose that uh, provides some palliative care for their anxiety as opposed to exacerbates it. That's no easy trick. Well, you use the words cathartic and inspiring. Many of my reviewers have used different words to describe my writing, but I'll take cathartic and inspiring. I appreciate that. <laughs> As well, when you're uh, writing about uh, canker sores and the like, I suppose it's, <laughs> it's a little bit more difficult to be inspiring, I suppose. It's, it's the... Yes. You know, my poetry is poetry in much the way, same way say Burger King is farm-to-table dining. <laughs> well, there you go. That's the sort of imagery we expect from a poem. It helps us uh, provide you. It helps us gain greater understanding of the human condition. And so, um, yes, that's right. Why, why zero in on, on anxious people? Because I assume this idea was percolating before COVID. Yeah, it's either spectacular or spectacularly bad timing. My publisher is still trying to figure that out. I wrote a few years ago a love poems for married people, and then I followed that up with love poems for uh, with people people with children. And so we were trying to think of a third one because who doesn't want more mediocre poetry <laughs> yes. from me? Yes. Um, and we were thinking, you know, marriage and children tend to be fairly universal experiences, um, whether you're in a relationship that you call marriage, whatever it is. Most people throughout the history of the world have done this thing and certainly have children. And so what's the third one? We were thinking is love poems for almost divorced people, you know, love poems for early release felons, sure. you know, wildly depressed people. And we sort of honed in on anxious people because I do think anxiety is a fairly universal experience. You know, that little voice that we have in our head most every day, right, that is most oftentimes not our friend. We review conversations we've had in the elevator. We feel embarrassed about things. In 20 minutes, I will, my little voice will review this conversation and tell me how spectacularly horrible I was in this interview, uh, which is always fun to look forward to. But I do think, especially now, with so much unknown, right, anxiety, the brain doesn't like unknown. We like a planned day. We don't like surprises. The nature of this new world is so anxiety-causing because we just were trying to figure out, you know, the world post-COVID. And I guess for me, anytime I can laugh at it, at the unexpected, at the absurdity of what's going on, it, it makes the day go by a little faster. Uh, again, love poems for anxious people. It must be tough to find words that rhyme with, say, Xanax, right? I, how do you, yeah, <clears throat> Yeah, and, and you'll that. notice that very few of my uh, poems rhyme. So <laughs> that's one of the re- reasons I went that route. But, yeah. You can use a lot of brand yeah. name pharma products that way when you're talking about anxious people and not have to worry about yeah, rhyme scheme. Yeah, and I'm scheme. hoping if you know, any of the major pharma companies are listening, you know, I'm, I'm certainly <laughs> open to sponsorship. Right. So, so, think, so thinking about love poems for anxious people, not just poems for anxious people, but specifically love poems, um, I, I just want to understand how you sort of, I mean, to just to borrow your characterization of mediocre poetry, how you like shell Silverstein eyes, uh, my love is like a red, red rose that's freshly sprung in June. Yeah. 
I would add that, you know, for, to make that poem more interesting to me, I would add, and unfortunately, I just stepped in something the dog left near that rose. <laughs> okay, um, very, yeah. uh, so much more concrete that way. Well, there you go. Yeah, I'm interested in the sort of intersection of pain and humor, uh, pain and the unexpected, because it does seem to me that that's, you know, we all we all have this notion, I think, that our lives are very unique and individual and certainly our experiences are but i think there's a universality to feelings like anxiety fear confusion regret embarrassment while i may not have said to someone you know in the elevator you know when do you do and it turns out that that woman is not due i can certainly <laughs> empathize with that feeling Right. In fact, I actually, yeah. I, I did say that once uh, at, at my first job. I was waiting for an elevator and a c- colleague of mine, <clears throat> I hadn't seen in a little bit. And I said to her, when do you do? And there were several other people around and you could hear the oxygen being sucked out of the yeah, lobby. S- slow motion, right? <laughs> Everything yeah. starts to freeze. Yeah, and that's how I lost my two front teeth. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, no, it's, it's the other thing it seems like that's universal is an appreciation for gallows humor, and it seemed like that's a, a particular skill set of yours. You're very kind uh, to, to say that. I I'm from a big Boston Irish Catholic family. I'm one of six boys on the younger end. All of them ten times finer than I'll ever be. And you know, like so many people in big families, if you wanted a modicum of attention uh, uh, in a world uh, pre-helicopter parents. I don't know what the opposite of helicopter parents are, but those were my parents. Uh, uh, You know, you had to sort of make people chuckle. Uh, And, you know, maybe it's an Irish thing, but I, I, I do like dark humor. I, I, I think it helps to laugh at pain. Can you uh, give us uh, as we close here, maybe a a stanza that uh, stands out to you of your own work here in love poems for anxious people? There is the poem about uh, uh, the eulogy, but, um, I, you know, you had referenced the first poem in the book. Um, uh, I could I could read that. Pull it, please. I'll, I'll it yeah, you. let's do a poetry slam style, do it, you know, however you want to Absolutely. present it. Absolutely. Yes. And I'll try to, I'll try to, yeah. This is, um, this is called a WebMD. It started out simple enough, a brief search, canker sore, which I spelled wrong and now realize is a district in India as well as the Dutch slang for a very bad word, and also somehow cancer, which led me to a site that linked canker sores to cold sores, showing how oral cancer lesions can mimic an open canker sore, symptoms of which include mouth pain, difficulty swallowing, both of which I suddenly had. And as I followed the link to the definition of head and neck cancer, which I did not know was a thing, nor did I realize that I was now at risk for it as a result of my mouth lesion, canker, and cancer sore, which often causes golf ball-sized tumors, resulting in blindness, lack of motor function, and complete sexual dysfunction, which is good to know. Hmm. Then I looked up an earache I was having, and it turns out that I have two months to live, or possibly a head cold. I tell you, you know what, I, I feel better already. Uh, it, these really work, these love poems for anxious people. He is John Kenny. Award then, win- then my work here is done. <laughs> exactly. Please go on and <laughs> save someone else. 
John Kenny, <laughs> award-winning New York Times best-selling author of poetry collections, love poems for married people, love poems for people with children, the novels Talk to Me and Truth in Advertising, and his new collection, Love Poems for Anxious People. John Kenny, thanks so much for joining us and great, uh, great uh, success with the poetry. Thank you. T- take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Let's return to a topic we touched upon with our friend Dominic Green from uh, Spectator USA at the top of the hour. Five governors, three Democrat socialists, two conservative Republicans. The states, New York, Illinois, California, Georgia, and Florida. Let's do a little comparison contrast, shall we? And again, the quality of the argument being offered, Illinois versus Georgia. And then we'll go New York, Florida. How's that? Illinois versus Georgia. Governor uh, J.B. Pritzker, King J.B. of House Pritzker, governor of Illinois, was asked, you know, those dire predictions of uh, Georgia when uh, Brian Kemp reopened, including uh, drawing the criticism of Pritzker, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, people have nothing to do with Georgia, but, you know, want to pile on to score cheap political points. They'll go whichever way the D.C. press corps is going and vice versa. Uh, predicting uh, end times in Georgia. Well, it turns out so far, Georgia is uh, doing much better than Illinois. In point of fact, Ron Fournier had to admit I was wrong about Georgia with my dire predictions of what would happen based on Brian Kemp's uh, actual, rational, segmented reopening. Here's uh, Pritzker's explanation. First of all, we have a a major uh, global city uh, in Chicago uh, that has international passengers that were passing through, uh, coming to and staying in uh, Chicago and even traveling throughout the state of Illinois. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with a city called Atlanta in the state of Georgia, Governor, but uh, there is this big city called Atlanta. It's got a big airport, Hartsfield. In fact, Hartsfield and O'Hare compete annually to uh, see who earns the title of world's busiest airport. Right. And uh, also uh, just a quick perusal of the uh, data when it comes to the most international flights. In 2018, Hartsfield had more international flights than O'Hare did. So uh, big city, big airport, international travel, that doesn't seem to quite explain the difference between the two states, now does it? It's very much like Gavin Newsom on with, uh, let's go California, then we'll get to Florida versus New York. Gavin Newsom uh, from California on with uh, Jake Tapper on Sunday, rattling his tin cup around for federal relief slash bailout money for California? Uh, I, with respect, will just uh, caution people to look at this as a frame of charity when it's fundamental purpose of government. It's to protect people's safety and to protect their well-being. This is a moment where we need to meet the moment head on and acknowledge this is not a red issue or a blue issue. This has impacted every state in America. Uh, There's no question, but it is a red ink issue. Not red or blue in the political sense, in the financial sense. And uh, Gavin Newsom was patting himself on the back for uh, paying down $9 billion in unfunded pension liabilities last fiscal year. 
this from the California Policy Center. California state and local liabilities total $1.5 trillion. $1.5 trillion. Same thing in Illinois. Pritzker talking about uh, he uh, crafted a balanced budget last year, well on a way to balanced budget this year. That's a lie because these guys don't consider the obligations that are occurring in real time, like unfunded pension and health care liabilities. Illinois has $250 billion in total debt. $200 billion of that is unfunded pension and health care liabilities. There's no way to finance these obligations, same in California, and there's no way to bail, and there's no, no moral or ethical responsibility, much less constitutional one, to uh, bail them out of the position they've put their, themselves in and their states in. The Wall Street Journal opines about uh, Florida versus New York. Should Florida bail out New York? And they did a little look-see the year that Andrew Cuomo took office versus the year Rick Scott took office, both first elected governor in 2010. Since 2010 to present, or at least to mid-2019, New York's population has been stagnant, while Florida's has uh, grown to be bigger than New York's was not in 2010. Yet Mr. Cuomo recently signed a budget for fiscal year 2021 of $177 billion, bigger than last year's. Florida's for fiscal year 2021 expected to be $93 billion, about half New York's with more residents than New York. Democrats in Albany claiming to be victims of events, but they've increased spending by $43 billion since 2010. That's 570 grand for each additional person. person. Florida's budget, by contrast, increased by $28 billion with a growth of population of nearly $3 million. So that's only about ten grand per new resident. $570,000 for each additional person in New York, $10,000 for each new resident in Florida over the last decade. And uh, for those arguing the donor state, as Cuomo does, other big state governors do, federal dollars account for about 36% of New York state spending compared to 33% of Florida's. Uh-huh. So again, uh, on the merits, who is being persuasive and who is looking to be rescued from uh, generations of bad decisions? Some they inherited and some they presided over, as the case of Andrew Cuomo. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, everybody was talking about uh, President Obama's anodyne commencement speech to 2020 high school grads. Mitch Daniels was uh, making remarks for the class of 2020 at Purdue, more than 7,500 graduates. Uh, he made those remarks at an empty hall, um, saying, I never expected this to be addressing you with me in an empty hall and you far away, wherever you're viewing this virtual ceremony. He uh, had some interesting uh, comments. He focused a lot on the um, tribalism that he's talked about a lot. He talked about when he was governor of Indiana as well. Um, Also, uh, the epidemic of loneliness. He writes, in uh, recent years, I've spoken about the tribalism that now divides Americans. I've talked about the seeming shortage of emotional resilience and grit in your peer group. Twice I find myself urging graduates to guard against the so-called big sort the tendency for young people of your quality and educational attainment to cluster together professionally and socially and to drift uh, apart from those of different backgrounds. Um, and uh, and he goes on to talk about uh, what he calls the anti-social media 
and how that drives loneliness and atomization that is unhelpful. Well, um, let's get a first-person perspective, not just on the Purdue experience and Mitch Daniels' commencement address, but on uh, college for recent college grads more generally. And to do that, we're pleased to be joined by Madeline Bezarek. She is a Purdue University graduate, class of 2020. Madeline, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. What was your major? Um, I majored in speech, language, hearing sciences, and I minored in human development and family studies. Oh, okay. Very good. Well, so you'll probably thank get a you. job. That's good. You didn't do something like economics or, or you know, uh, medieval art uh, and so forth. No, I did not, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a Renaissance poetry, like some of us humanities buffs did. Um, so, so tell us about the Purdue experience and how you received uh, Mitch Daniels's concerns about uh, loneliness, about uh, anti-social media, as he terms it, about tribalism. Well, so when I was watching it, like you said, you kind of covered what he talked about. Um, he said along the lines of basically get off social media, like log off. And I agreed with him. I mean, during this whole time, you can't go see your friends anymore, so we have to kind of rely on social media. But even at school, before all COVID happened, a lot of the times our friends would be on our phones when we'd all be together. And it was a little frustrating whenever we would be with our friends and we would be on our phones. And I'm just like, hey, like, get off your phone. So I definitely agreed with him on that whole aspect. So, yeah. What about uh, the resilience issue and the question as to whether or not uh, people of your age group and, and your educational attainment are resilient enough because of uh, sort of how they're pampered in life, particularly on college campuses? Well, this whole situation just proves how resilient we were as a class. Like, at first, when we heard all of this going on, the first question we thought is, what are we going to do with school? Like, are we going to be continuing? A lot of my friends at school, um, we weren't sure if we were going to graduate because we had labs or um, in-class hours that you had to do, and we weren't sure if it was going to happen, and we were able to persevere and get through this whole thing, and we graduated through one of the most difficult times that we've ever experienced in the world, so definitely. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. so, so with respect to the conversations with your friends, how how have they changed uh, in this uh, in the last couple of months as we've uh, dealt with this pandemic? Um, well, like I said earlier, I definitely think we became stronger because of it. Um, how else would you describe it? I think we started to be more aware of what was going on and how something can be taken away from us within the blink of an eye, and we definitely matured more. Like we were already pretty mature, but I think we matured real fast when we heard that school was over for us, um, graduation was taken away. We also just started to like notice how a government could like completely change everything for you so fast. Mm. Maybe, uh, maybe, and maybe not in your particular peer group, but, but generally, um, do you find like, you know, all the, as, as Daniels calls it, the big sort, the, um, all the identity politics stuff has, that those conversations have sort of dissipated in the face of more, important topics to tackle honestly most of my friends are pretty conservative there was a couple that wasn't like i didn't seek out conservative people that's just how it ended up happening but um i definitely noticed it throughout campus even through instagram like my friends from high school 
they, like, I kind of knew in high school, even at the time, what political party, how people identified, and just seeing how, like, more Democrats were saying, you have to listen to the government, you have to quarantine, you've got to wear the mask, and then you'd see a lot of the Republicans saying, this is a little much at this point, like, relax. And I definitely did start to see more segregation based on political party and anything else people identified from. As you're looking forward to uh, entering the job market and, again, your peers as well, what are some of the concerns that, that you have as you're seeing everything unfold? Um, not having a job, honestly. Yeah. I was in the hiring process of working at a speech pathology practice clinic type setting, and I had an interview for it. I came in and I shadowed to see what their practice was about. And I was supposed to shadow a couple of, like, speech therapy sessions and a couple of applied basal analysis sessions, but those canceled last minute because kids got sick, and that makes sense, and I was supposed to come in for a second shadow day, and it was going to be March 19th, and that's when Illinois started to go into quarantine, so they had to cancel it. And I've been emailing the office saying, like, hey, any chance, like, do you know anything about me coming in? And they said, I don't know. We just, we have no idea when we're opening it's just going to be very hard because a lot of people are not going to be hiring. They mostly let off people in the entire job market. So it's very frustrating and worrying to know if I'm going to get a job soon. All right, Madeline Bezarek, Purdue University graduate class of 2020. Congratulations on your graduation and uh, good luck with your job search as well. We appreciate your perspective. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. An interesting study uh, by noted political demographer, uh, demographers uh, George Howley and Eric Kaufman out that looked at um, how voters reacted to the insufferable, intolerable New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, some of the statements she made in her ill-fated campaign for president and what it says about the currency of identitarian politics. It's interesting. The demographers I mentioned found her explicit allusions to um, whiteness made self-identified moderates important and conservatives less likely to say they would back her. Conservatives, not so surprising. Moderates, though, too. Exposure to the comments did not make respondents more likely to identify as conservative or to identify with other whites. They just didn't like her rhetoric. They didn't change who their political leaning. It just uh, is something that rebuffed them, even if they maintain their sort of moderate to center left perspective. It's sort of noting uh, a cautionary 
result for those who traffic in the race hustling rhetoric. To conduct their study, they assembled a sample of 817 white Americans. They were each asked to read and respond to three Gillibrand quotes with uh, quotes they received randomized to be more neutral or more explicit in their progressive racial rhetoric. For example, one was Gillibrand stressing kindness and unity, seemingly relatively innocuous. The other was her famous uh, incantation when there, when her son is walking down the street with a bag of M&Ms in his pocket wearing a hoodie, his whiteness is what protects him from not being shot, which he said in Youngstown, Ohio, much to the chagrin of many assembled in Youngstown, Ohio, uh, which sort of speaks to the uh, conclusion the authors derived from the results they got from the respondents. They were then asked to rate how likely they were to support Gillibrand on a six-point scale. Uh and uh, and ultimately, there was just a huge drop off between the less the more innocuous statement and then the M&M's is, you know, M&M's in his pocket and his hoodie, his whiteness prevents him from being shot as if that's a fair characterization of the Trayvon Martin case or just, you know, in general. It's obviously uh, cheap racial demagoguery. Uh, and uh, again, the authors write our results show that white Americans were less likely to support a candidate promoting an explicitly progressive agenda on race. At the same time, we find no evidence that calls for such an agenda actually provoke a backlash in racial attitudes. The findings seeming to suggest that such rhetoric is unpopular with the voters, even as it becomes increasingly mandatory for Democrats trying to win the support of the party's progressive active base. Very interesting. Yeah. It also militates against the popular backlash narrative in which uh, increasingly progressive elite rhetoric prompted white Americans to become racially conscious and right leaning. It did no such thing. It just made them less likely to support the person they know is race hustling them. You see the difference? The voters do. Thank you for joining us in another installment of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.